0: with Dr. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadid Hulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in: three one zero four four one zero five five five. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, relationship issues, and parenting issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 3104410555. I announced it on Monday, but the book of the week is Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Hope you'll join me in reading this wonderful book, which is a letter between the author and his son, um, essentially about racism and growing up as an African-American in United States, and it's a wonderful book. Uh, I hope you'll join me reading that, and I'll discuss it on Monday's show next week Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I wanted to start off the show today talking about breakups, a pretty painful topic, uh, but one that is important to talk about because I talk a lot about relationships and we talk about what can make them good and strong and how we can improve them and work on them and all of that. But of course, relationships don't always work out and we do have to deal with breakups Um, and I'm not going to get too much into the breakups themselves but actually I wanted to talk about how we can be there for a friend or a loved one when they go through a breakup because like any grieving process there's a lot we do want from people around us and a lot we don't want and unfortunately we don't always get what we want and we get some of what we don't want. For example when people lose someone as far, to a death, very often what they get from people around them is not what they're looking for or what they want and actually can hurt them even more. And in breakups, it's a different type of loss, but still what we want from people around us can be very helpful in our healing process or it can hurt us and maybe even make us feel more hurt or isolated. So to begin with, uh, a breakup is a loss a, and it can be a very big one by, based on how long the relationship has been, what it meant to that person and many other factors, but a breakup is painful. And like any kind of loss, we have to go through a grieving process when that happens. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but if people break up and they say, oh, I was with someone for two, three years and I didn't shed a tear or care when we broke up, I don't see that as a sign of strength, I see that as a sign of weakness that either one, they didn't allow themselves to connect to that person during the relationship, which is very sad, and that's not a sign of strength. It shows that they were afraid to let themselves feel and get connected with someone. Or two, they're currently hiding their emotions from themselves, not letting themselves feel their sadness, which is not a sign of strength either. So when you go through a breakup, crying is very healthy and natural and okay, and you shouldn't feel like it makes you weak. Of course, before I get into what you can and could do or shouldn't do uh, what's important to always remember is that every person is going to be unique so there isn't a one size fits all i can tell you what to say and do with every single person that breaks up Um, each breakup is different and each person is different so we have to remember that too but i want to give some generals that we can try to keep in mind when someone is going through that painful process so again it's that a painful process and we have to remember that anytime someone is going through anything our role is not going to be to fix the problem or to take away their pain it is just to be there with them to support them and comfort them as they go through their healing process so someone's crying about whatever reason but let's say about a breakup you're not supposed to necessarily make them feel good And you shouldn't put that pressure on yourself to feel, make them feel good. Sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves, it actually makes us go away from the person. We see them crying. We think we have to make them cheer up. We don't know how to make them cheer up. So let me just get away from the situation because I don't know what to do. But the truth of the matter is you don't have to do very much. Just being there, being present, being near them is plenty and can be exactly what they need. Is it going to make them feel happy? No, because guess what? They're not supposed to be happy immediately they're supposed to be sad if uh, someone breaks their leg you don't you're not supposed to try to get them running that day you need to let them heal so similarly if someone's sad about a breakup or another type of loss give them that space to be sad don't feel like you need to cheer them up and in that way also take the pressure off yourself to have to do so much to make them feel good feel happy stop crying and that of course is the main thing people say when someone starts to cry stop crying you don't need to cry especially in breakups, he or she isn't worth your tears, things like that. But it's not about them being worth your tears. Hopefully they were in a relationship that was something beautiful and good and nice and they're sad about it ending. That's not a bad thing. Your tears don't go to the recipient of, you know, they don't become the recipient because you're crying about the breakup or something like that. The the tears are for you. You're the one healing. You're not giving them to someone else. So we have to accept that when we tell them that we want them to stop crying, which many of us do, it's not about them, it's about us. I can't tolerate their tears. I have a hard time seeing them sad. I am intolerant of my own sadness. I can't handle it. It feels so overwhelming. So seeing it in them, they must be suffering. We can project that type of a thought or feeling onto them. And them being sad makes me sad. I can't tolerate that either. So you're not being a good friend or a good loved one saying, stop crying. You don't need to cry. Allow the person to cry. Now, another thing that people commonly do when someone goes through a breakup is they put down the person that they broke up with or the relationship, but especially they put the person down thinking somehow somehow this will help. So if you're sad because you're missing that person, well, if I diminish how good that person is, you'll be less sad and This almost always does not feel good to the person. Now, in some rare cases where the person was really hurt by the person, they cheated on them or abused them or something really bad, maybe they want a little bit of that. Again, each person is going to be different. But in general, especially if it was in any way an amicable breakup or it was just something that happened, telling the person that the other person was not good, was bad, was uh, you were better than them or they were not that good in this way or that way or I never liked them to begin with, is not going to make them feel better. That's not what they need to hear. So putting the other person down does not help the person that you are trying to support. Um, Making them, minimizing their relationship, oh, well, you only were together this long, right? That's not going to help them feel better either, and that's not what they need. In any uh, response that someone has, invalidating and diminishing what they're experiencing is not what they need. We, they need to be validated. Like, I know you miss him or you miss her or this is very sad. Painfuls are so uh breakups are sorry, our breakups are so painful. They're very they hurt a lot and that's what you're feeling right now. So, bashing the ex is not going to make them feel better and is not something good, and so you don't need to go there. Unfortunately, it's a common place that people go. So, don't put down the person don't minimize the relationship again that'd be minimizing their pain and for most people they don't want to hear bad things about that person they still care about them and still love them they don't think negatively most of them most of the time and saying that just hurts them it doesn't feel good they're not uh, crying because they think the person is good and needs to convince them they're bad they're crying because they did enjoy the relationship and they're grieving the loss of this person and if anything, you should value that and cherish that with them that I can understand that that's painful. So don't put the person down. Don't minimize the relationship. And of course, a do that I'm already touching on is just validate and recognize that they're in pain and and re- express that to them. I know this is really hard for you. Just like when um, a loved one dies, we don't need to justify it or make it sound good and say, oh, they're in a better place or... God had a plan for them, so you're lucky this happened because who knows what would have happened later on. Or whatever we try to say to fix the situation, the breakup. it's the same thing. Less is more. You don't need to um, give them a whole reason as to why this happened and why it's better for them and all these things. Just say, I understand you're sad right now. You're in pain. They don't want to think about the next relationship yet. When someone is grieving that loss, they don't need to hear, oh, there's plenty of fish in the sea. You're going to find someone really soon. You're going to be really happy. Right now, they're healing this loss. They don't need to focus so much on what's happening next and be assured something is going to happen and get better. So less is more. You just need to be there for them and let them know you understand their pain. You recognize that this is not an easy time. And then also, as I mentioned before, you want to see what they want from you. How can you help them? Some people might actually say, right now, I don't want to talk too much about it. Maybe we will later on, but we're now, just maybe cheer me up. Let's go do something to at least a little while, take my mind off of it. And that can be okay. Now, if they completely avoid it and never get to the feelings and never talk about it, that can be unhealthy. But sometimes they can be too emotional or too overwhelmed to talk about it at that time. And we don't want to go to the other extreme and force them that no, you have to talk about it now you're sad you have to get it out now you have to release it now sometimes they might not be ready and they can let you know so as always we want to check in with the person and say hey what can i what can i do or how can i help you the best maybe they need to go see a movie relax a little bit go for a massage go for a walk whatever it might be to to relax a little bit and then later on hopefully deal with the feelings a little bit more with you or with someone else And related to that, sometimes if it's a painful enough breakup and you see that they could need some more help than what you can provide, offering therapy is not a bad idea. Not you offering it yourself, but offering that idea that going with therapists can be helpful. Sometimes people go in for a very specific reason to therapy to get over, let's say, a breakup, and it can be very helpful for them and can make it a lot easier. I've heard of many people do that, and I've had many people do that with me as their therapist as well and sometimes they go in and they talk about the breakup and they think that's the only thing i want to work on but our relationships issues um, are of course can be very connected to a lot of our deeper issues so getting over that one thing is going to be connected to other things and they might recognize you know what i actually want to continue therapy and to go through this process now and look at other things that are going on in my life and get some help so we want to do it in a gentle way people react differently when you mention therapy to some people because of the stigma they think you're telling them they have a problem or um, they're crazy or things like that. Or they might think you're saying you can't handle them, so you're sending them away. So you can let them know, I'm still here to talk to you always as a friend, but I know that therapy can be very helpful and maybe that can be helpful for you at this time. So you're letting them know that there is more help out there, but I'm still here, I'm not sending you away. So bottom line and one thing to take home is you don't need to fix the problem as you never need to fix anyone's problem. You are not responsible to make that person feel good. And in this case, they need to feel sad for a while. That's what healing is. Grief is a process where you do feel sad, you do feel hurt for a while. And through that, you actually heal the pain and also come through it stronger. But we have to let someone go through that process. And all you need to do at the most is to be alongside them as they go through that process. You don't need to push them forward You don't need to pull them out of it. You need to just be alongside them, walk on that journey as they are healing. And in that way, you can really help someone who's going through a breakup um, in the best way that you can by being a supportive, loving friend or family member. In that process, we don't need to tell them they shouldn't be sad. They don't need to be sad. It wasn't that big of a deal or they weren't that good. None of those things help. Allow them to be sad and recognize that sometimes there is a lot of meaning in pain and we need to experience that. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We will be right back. Back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui, studio number 3104410555. Uh, this weekend on Saturday, I went to the Hollywood Bowl to see the Muppets Take the Bowl. It was a really fun show. Um, thank you to Kia and Pego who got the tickets. That uh, was a very nice evening and really enjoyed the show. I earlier in the day had, th- I threw out my back, or I think that's what I did. I don't know what it was, but really hurt. Um, my back and couldn't stand up straight and was in a lot of pain and still I'm in some pain but doing okay um, but the show actually was a nice distraction and I definitely enjoyed the show and if you've ever seen the Muppets I, I remember seeing them since I was a kid it is a they are a fun bunch but one thing that was interesting you know the show was like a variety show different things were going on and a lot of the things were just very weird and out there and some of them I would say hit and some didn't sometimes I was laughing and sometimes I wasn't really sure what was going on but it was still fun but something I like about the Muppets in general and I liked about the show that I was thinking about and thought it was worth talking about today is that there's an all-inclusiveness about the Muppets and also this idea that you can be weird and different and it's okay and it's accepted they're all eccentric in certain ways and they're different in, in different ways. And, and you see that in the different characters and how they act things out. But it was just a reminder to me and that's something I really liked, and especially I like that it's, it's something that kids and adults can both enjoy, but it goes to kids of accepting, just be who you are. Even if you're different or it's a little bit weird, that's okay. And I think that's a, a good message and one that we don't often think about or allow for ourselves and for our kids. And I wanted to talk about that. Because we think we're supposed to raise kids to be a certain way, to make them fit the mold, or else we think, oh, they're going to get, they'll be embarrassed, or um, they're going to look bad, or you know, things aren't going to be good for them unless we make them become a certain way. And to a certain degree, this is something we, as a society, have made something important. You need to be a certain way, and if you're not, it's not a good thing, and we have to make you be this. But it would be so much nicer if we all lost that idea or didn't recognize that as the truth because it's not. What's better is to allow people to be who they are and to express that. And actually then we all benefit when people would do that. I always respect artists who um, are a little bit different. Now, I actually think a problem is sometimes some artists act different to sort of feel like they're a genius or walking that line because they're so eccentric. So I think that's unfortunately become a thing now because we hear about so many genius artists doing weird things. And now sometimes artists in an attempt to appear to be a genius, do something weird or do weird things to just show that they're different and to assume that role. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, genuine expression of who you are. And we see this in kids in a young age. They're not self-conscious about themselves. They don't think about how they look or what's happening when you play with a kid who is still young enough to have that imagination run wild without any feeling that they should change who they are, they'll make up games and they'll do things that are really interesting and quite creative. And one of the reasons why they're able to do that is because they're not held back in any way of thinking, well, what if this isn't a good idea? What if people judge me for it? What if it doesn't look good? Should I think this? Should I not think this? All those things that get in the way of creativity and true expression. And that's why I really do love playing with kids for lots of reasons. They're also very cute and they're fun, but one thing I love is to see when they're still so in touch with themselves and expressing who they are and what they are. Uh, This is why actually when it comes to deciding something to do or somewhere to eat or something to watch, I almost always prefer to do what the kid wants. First of all, because uh, their joy I think it can feel more special and precious and also time for them is slower and they feel things more deeply. So I think it's nicer to do what they want in most situations. But also I feel like when you're with a kid and they say they really want something, you know they really want that. They're more in touch with themselves. So they say, I want to go eat this or I want to watch this or I want to play this. You really feel it deeply in them that that's what they want to do. Whereas us as adults, we might not even recognize it, but we've been so socialized and we think so much about how things look. How am I going to look? Is it right? Is it wrong? Should I want to do this? Should I not want to do this? That it affects every decision we make. And even when we think we know what we want, very often we don't know. We think we do, but we don't. And actually I enjoy the process in therapy of trying to help people find what they truly want because although we think it's very obvious and should be easy, we can just ask ourselves, it's really not that simple because we have, been, we have so many pressures from outside and then we internalize them ourselves that we don't really know oftentimes what we want. Who do we want to be with? Who do we, what would we want to do? What would we want to even do today? What would be my dream job? What would be my dream, um, whatever else it might be? How would I want to live my life? Most people, although they might think they know, Very often they don't know, often because they're afraid to know. One, because if I know what I truly want, well, then I have to give it to myself, which might involve a lot of work and change and facing challenges. But also, what if what I want is somehow, quote unquote, not good or not okay? I would be judged by it or uh, even judge myself for it. So we often choose the safer road of not even knowing what we want or what we would want to be or do. But when we go back to kids, we they come into the world with this, out that self-consciousness. Sometimes it's even because of their egocentricity. They're so in their own mind. They can't think so much from the other person's perspective of how it might look, and they're so stuck in that. So in a way, it's because of that lack of awareness that they have at that stage that they don't feel that way, that self-consciousness. But unfortunately, we as adults in society, we start to instill that in them, that you shouldn't be a certain way or you are you going to embarrass yourself if you do this, or this is a should or shouldn't kind of a situation, and this is right and wrong, and because I said so, this is what you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do. And I think that's very, very unfortunate. And so going back to the Muppets, the idea that you can be weird, that's okay. And even weird itself, of course, has a judgmentalness to it, and weird is based on what we think of as weird. But I think all of us would be a lot more weird if we were allowed to be ourselves. We assume we have to dress a certain way and walk a certain way and act a certain way that's become acceptable. But I wonder what we would do if that weren't the case, if we didn't have all these restrictions. Even you see kids sometimes, and they're walking around and doing a weird pose or a weird strut. Sometimes, not you know because they're they they think that this is going to look cool. Necessarily, they're not even thinking about that. It just feels right to them. And again, going back to artistic expression, very often it is expressing our truer self within ourselves, I think it was Van Gogh or Picasso, I can't remember which one, who said something essentially on the lines of, I'm I'm trying to become the child within myself when I paint or to paint becoming like the three-year-old I was. That's what I'm trying to do every time I paint, tap into who I really am without that uh, feeling of self-consciousness or connecting really to that vitality that's within me. And even when we look at transactional analysis, we all have a parent, adult, and a child. And the child is a source of our vitality, our creativity, our spontaneity. And we, unfortunately, can very often stifle that as we get older. But going back to letting your kids be weird, when you have that feeling, that thought that I can't let my kid do this, or I should tell him be this way or don't be that way, try to recognize where that's coming from. Of course, it's coming from your own feelings of judgment towards yourself, or your fears of being judged by other people. But your job as a parent is to make sure not to make your child fit some mold, but allow themselves to be themselves and express themselves. And most importantly, not to feel judged for being who they are and what they are and acting how they want to act. That's very, very important. That, yes, sometimes we think I have to tell him not to because they're going to get judged outside. But unfortunately, you're the one that's judging them now and making them feel like even mommy and daddy doesn't like who I am. Mommy and daddy don't think I'm good how I am. So you don't want to send them that message. You want to let them know, okay, you want to do this, let's do that. And I love, and I mention this all the time, when you go to, you know, you're out in public and you see a kid not on Halloween, but wearing a costume, you know, they're dressed as Batman or Superman or in a ballerina outfit all the way, you know, head to toe. And I like that because one, I think it looks so cute seeing the kid just wearing what they want to wear but also that the parents allowed the child to wear what they wanted to wear, not judging them for it. I remember for a long time when I was a kid, I liked to wear ties because probably because I'd see my dad wearing ties. So I was like three or four, and I would insist that even if we went to a park, I would be wearing overalls and they'd clip on a tie to my overalls, which kind of looks funny, but I insisted that I have to wear a tie. And I like that they let me wear the tie and they didn't think, oh, it's going to look bad. We're at the park. You shouldn't wear a a tie to the park, so don't wear a tie. Why can't you wear a tie to the park? And so they let me, and I think that's great. And as parents, I hope you can remember that, that let them do what they want to do. Your kids actually have it figured out a lot better than you do a lot of times and let them be themselves. I think it's quite refreshing to see a child who uh, is expressing themselves in that way, being who they want and what they want to do. And that's why I think playing with a child for all of us, when you really let yourself get into it's such a good feeling because through them, you start to connect to that own child within you. And I get to do play therapy with kids and I enjoy the process so much because they really take you into their world and in their imagination and you get lost in it with them. And you remember how nice it was to just let yourself think without judging what you think. And speaking of judging what you think, This is a big theme in meditation and mindfulness, that when we're meditating, you're trying your best not to think, or essentially trying to focus on your, let's say, breath and stay focused there. But you know that thoughts will come to your mind, but the important part is that you look at them with non-judgmental awareness. So they come to your mind and you can think, oh, I'm thinking about my meeting tomorrow, or I'm thinking about what happened yesterday. And rather than judging yourself for having the thought or judging yourself even for thinking, I know a lot of people, they try to meditate. They said, oh, I stopped because I wasn't good at it. I kept thinking about things. And it's like, that's okay. Even the process, you approach it with non-judgmental awareness that I'm not gonna judge myself for having thoughts. That's kind of natural, it's gonna happen. And I'll get better at it over time of pushing the thoughts away, but that it's okay to have thoughts pop into your head. But also that you're not gonna judge yourself for the thoughts that you have. Why am I thinking about that? Why am I not over this? Why do I worry about things? Why am I thinking at all? That's not the approach we want to have. It's more of a non-judgmental awareness. And when you take that, it's not just about when you're meditating, you bring it to your life. And as parents, we want to have that with our kids. And of course, if there's something with their health or something significantly wrong, we don't want to ignore them when they're in pain or if they're suffering or if they need to see a doctor for some reason. So with non-judgmental awareness, that doesn't mean you're ignoring them or neglecting them. But we want to bring that with them, that you show them non-judgmental awareness, because having the awareness shows you're interested in them. You're talking to them, you're looking at them, you're experiencing them. And you show them that you value them for being who they are, but you're not judging them for being one way or being another way or saying they should be this way or shouldn't be that way. Let your kids be who they are. Let them be weird. Let them be whoever they want to be. And the great thing is, as a society, we benefit from that when people get to be themselves. People contribute more. People are more creative and more innovative. And especially in today's day and age, we're seeing that information, of course, it's still very important. It's all Learning is a very good thing as far as knowledge goes. But knowledge and information have become a lot less valuable because you can look up anything you want on a computer at any time. Knowing things can be good, but it's not as valuable as it used to be. So now the day and this day and in age, information is less important than innovation, being able to think and be able to be creative. And that's what all these, uh, the, in Silicon Valley and the places where they're looking at entrepreneurship and power was on the show talking about this on my show a couple of weeks ago, talking about how they're looking at innovation rather than information. Knowing things doesn't get you very far because people can look up whatever you know pretty easily themselves, but innovation, creativity, new ideas, new ways of doing things, that's something that you can't just look up, you have to create. And that creative side only happens when someone feels they have the space to be themselves, the space to fail, the space to express and not be judged about who they are or why they are doing that thing. And yes, a lot of the ideas don't work. Just like I said, when I was at the Muppets show at the Hollywood Bowl, I really enjoyed most of it, but some of them I didn't quite laugh at, but it was still interesting. But because they were so creative and out there, a lot of them were really, really funny and I enjoyed it. And some of them didn't work and that's okay. And that's the same thing with ideas. So let your kids be weird. Let them be themselves. Let them express themselves. Make sure they feel that they're okay being whoever they are, your job as a parent isn't to make them a certain thing it's allowed them to grow into who they want to be and what they want to be and that's all you're supposed to do all right we've reached our next commercial break studio number 310 441 you're listening to in session with dr fatty we'll be right back Studio number 3104410555. In the last segment, I talked about allowing your kids to have the safety to be themselves, even if that's being weird or being different and giving them that space. And recently, I came across an article in the Harvard Business Review, which in some ways approaches this or has this same idea, but looking at the workforce and how that affects things in the workplace. Uh, The title of the article is High Performing Teams Need Psychological Safety. Here's how to create it. And the article talks about a two-year study that was done at Google on team performance. And they found as the person who was the head of industry at Google says, Paul Santagata, there's no team without trust. And they did a study looking at how, which teams are performing the best. And they found that the teams who had the best performance overall, they had one thing in common, and that was psychological safety. Now, what that means, as they put it, the belief that you won't be punished when you make a mistake. You have to have that psychological safety. So, They've done other studies that show that when you have that, the psychological safety, it allows for moderate risk-taking, speaking your mind, more creativity, and as they put it, sticking your neck out without fear of having it cut off, having that kind of a feeling where you can be comfortable. Now, sometimes people think to get the best out of your employees and workers, you have to make them feel scared or have that fear in them that they're going to lose their job, push them, make them compete with each other and uh, negative ways and make it kind of a winner takes all kind of a feeling. we think that's the mentality that's going to work. And for many years, that's what people were doing, but now the research is showing us that that doesn't actually work because what happens is when you create that type of an environment, um, where it's combative and everything is kind of a winner takes all win lose type of a situation. Although it's in the workplace and we think, well, everything is calm and okay there, maybe we just make it more intense, what you're doing is you're triggering the flight or flight response in the brain. The brain doesn't take it just as a you know, intellectual debate, it becomes like an actual fight or it becomes an actual life or death type of a feeling. And this means a kind of an act first, think later, as they talk about it in the article, where you're going to be trying to just win almost at any cost rather than trying to think things through but when we actually create psychological safety when people feel comfortable to be themselves and that it's not going to be so adversarial this actually leads to things like become people becoming more open minded resilient motivated and even more persistent because they feel safe and it also leads to people being more creative uh, this similar to what I was talking about in the last segment with our kids, but if you're in a workplace where you're trying to have innovation and you want new ideas, if the person feels like if they come up with a bad idea, they're going to get criticized, put down, made fun of, embarrassed, shamed in front of their fellow employees, how comfortable are they going to feel really going out there, going out on a limb, coming up with something creative? We need to create that safety, that comfort that you can say something that's going to be wrong sometimes. Uh, if you're coming up with creative ideas, almost by definition, some of them are going to be bad. They're not going to be very good. Just like I said with the Muppets, some parts were hilarious. Some parts I was like, what's going on right now? But, and maybe someone else found it hilarious, of course, too. But at the same time, without taking those risks, you're not going to make advancements. You're not going to innovate. So in the they put an the article, when the workplace feels challenging, but not threatening, uh, teams can actually do something that might release more oxytocin, which is uh, a neurotransmitter that is related to trust and trust-making behaviors. So we can actually create trust within our workforce and the team that we're working with, and that can have a huge impact. So they go into six different ways to help promote psychological safety uh, within your team, within your work team. So the first one is to approach conflict as a collaborator, not an adversary so when you're working with someone even if you have differing opinions we don't make it win lose we hate losing and we love to win and when we make it win lose then we just feel like we have to win no matter what rather than trying to come up with a desirable outcome sometimes actually if we talk it through we see we want to do what the other person wanted to do but if it becomes win lose and my reputation is at stake and the way I'm going to look in the company is going to be totally dependent on whether my idea goes forward. Well, then I'm going to fight for my idea, even if I realize it's wrong. And that's the problem. When we have this cutthroat type of uh, environment, people don't try to make the best choices. They try to win. And when they try to win individually, the whole team doesn't win together. So we don't want to have this me versus you type of feeling. It's a we feeling. It's not about my idea being the winning idea. It's about the best idea becoming the winning idea. One um, concept that's related to this when we're looking at consultation in general or discussing things is that when I come up with an idea, as soon as it leaves my mouth, it's no longer my idea. It's the group's idea. It's not my idea is winning or losing or they're changing my idea. It's that I say this and now it belongs to the group. It's not mine anymore. We might tweak it. We might change it. We might throw it out altogether. I might even actually say, you know what? My idea is not that. I don't think that idea that I suggested is good because I think this one's better when I don't have that attachment to it. But when we have an environment that we have to win, and we want to make sure we get the credit when we don't have that psychological safety, then I'm going to fight to make sure my idea becomes a winning idea, even if I don't think it's best. The second one they say, is, speak human to human, meaning that we see each other as equals And we actually even see the person as they put it as just like me. And this could be even if you're not on the same team and you're um, on opposing sides, this can help us in creating empathy and understanding uh, and recognizing that we should have respect for one another. But as they write it here, you can remind yourself things like this person has beliefs, perspectives, and opinions just like me. This person has hopes, anxieties, and vulnerabilities just like me. This person has friends, family, and perhaps children who love them, just like me. This person wants to feel respected, appreciated, and competent, just like me. This person wishes for peace, joy, and happiness, just like me. And when I hear that, it reminds me of things I've talked about on the show when we're looking at negotiations, even between countries. And we know that people, when there's wars or we're at some kind of um, a disagreement with someone else in another country, we dehumanize that other group. We don't say they have loved ones and families and they're good people. We say they're evil and they're bad and they're they're nothing like us, but really they are. So it's a reminder that when you're trying to actually communicate with someone else, and even if you're seeing things very differently, that although you might differ on this idea, overall, you're both human and have lots of similarities. And it's just this idea that you might disagree on. We're very similar. We just see this one thing different. We're not enemies or two different people or even two different types of beings. We're just two individuals who are similar, but are having a disagreement at this time. And let's see if we can work it out. So the third one they say is to anticipate reactions and plan counter moves. So that means is that when you're interacting with other people in your team, you start to think about how they might respond in advance. This makes you less reactionary, waiting less to just see what happens. You actually start thinking about, you know what, when I bring up this feedback, maybe they're not going to like it very much. So I have to be ready that they might not like it and he or she might respond in a certain way rather than saying, well, I don't care what they think or feel. I'm going to tell them what I have to say. So you can anticipate what they might be thinking um, beforehand. Also the fourth one, this is very important and it deals with relationships in general, replace blame with curiosity. So rather than figuring out who's wrong to then put the blame on them and to make them feel bad, it's more important to focus on, well, what's going on and let's see if we can understand it better. And the reason why I said it relates to relationships, even in this article, they talk about John Gottman's research um, in general, looking at blame and criticism and how they reliably escalate conflict. When we start to blame someone else, say you're the problem, you're at fault, they have to defend themselves. Those are fighting words and that means I have to now fight with you. But if I say, you know, I wonder what's going on. And by that you can say, for example, if someone hasn't been coming in to work as much or has been coming late to meetings, you want to be very concrete, and this is also what John Gottman says, rather than um, criticizing, you complain. So you don't say you're a lazy person. You say, you know, yesterday you didn't pick up the dry cleaning when I really needed it. You specifically talk about an action. Similarly, in work, you say you've been coming too late to these meetings for the past two months, and I want to understand what's going on. So rather than blaming them, putting them down, making them feel bad about themselves, you want to allow them to tell you what's going on because they probably know what's going on much better than you are, right? If they're experiencing something, they can tell you rather than you telling them. The fifth one is ask for feedback on delivery. And this is something that a lot of um, a boss might have a hard time doing and not realizing they can or should do this, but asking the person even what worked and didn't work in my delivery. How did it feel to hear this message? How could I have presented it more effectively? And in this way, you allow the people you're talking with to feel that what you're saying isn't something that has to be this way, and this is the only way it can be. And also showing that I recognize that I can grow and improve myself, and I want to understand how it felt for you. And this could increase the trust that the workers have in their leaders when they feel like, okay, um, they're acknowledging that they're not infallible, they make mistakes, and they care about what I have to say. They care about my feedback and that makes the person feel very good and also helps you grow as an individual too of what works and what doesn't work, what hurts people, what doesn't hurt people. How can I say things in a better way? But sometimes the boss thinks they have to show a sign that I don't make mistakes, I don't doubt myself, I judge things and I go forward and I don't care what people have to say. But the research shows us that this does not help. And lastly, what you can do is measure psychological safety periodically in your team or in your workforce. Um, For example, they say you can ask questions like, how confident are you that you won't receive retaliation or criticism if you admit an error or make a mistake? And this is really important. If we look at things like Enron or other scandals where organizations became very unethical in their actions, very often it started because someone made a small mistake but because the environment didn't have psychological safety, they didn't feel comfortable to, to say that they made a mistake, that they wouldn't have huge consequences, that there was a very um, adversarial and competitive environment where they had to compete with fellow coworkers and make sure they stood out and not make any mistakes and kiss up to their higher-ups and all of that. They were afraid to acknowledge that smaller mistake and then it became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as they tried to cover up and became something really horrible. So how confident people are that they can actually express making an error is a very good sign of psychological safety and how things are going in your workforce and something you should actually try to promote if you're um, an owner of a company or the boss of some team in some way. You want people to be able to tell you, you know what, we messed this up or even I made a mistake here. I forgot to do this or I did this wrong before allowing it to become a bigger mistake that causes you bigger problems down the line making them afraid to make mistakes, which is what we sometimes think is a good thing, make them feel afraid to make a mistake so they don't make them. Well, that doesn't work. As human beings, we're going to make errors, we're going to make mistakes, and we want people to feel comfortable to express those things. So all these ways, and also, of course, there's much more to it than just that, but these are some examples of how you can improve psychological safety, but also something to keep in mind. And Google, of course, is a very respected company, and they have many teams working on different projects and they were curious as to what was affecting team performance what are things that make them work better and they found that the thing that was common in all the highest performing teams was psychological safety people have to feel comfortable to express themselves that they're not going to get retaliated against or criticized significantly or embarrassed and that they can express their skills in the best way when they're allowed to be themselves. And as I made the connection to the earlier segment, the same thing is true with our kids and anyone we interact with really, but back to our kids, letting them be themselves is what allows them to express themselves in the best way. Forcing the fit in some specific box doesn't allow them to be the best that they can be and doesn't allow them to feel good about who they are. So this same principle applies in the workforce as it does in parenting with our children. All right, next commercial break is upon us studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 you're listening to in session with dr fatty delocchi we'll be right back Back to In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. So I was talking before about psychological safety in a team and also uh, as a parent allowing yourself to, or allowing your children to be themselves. But then we can also look at this when it comes to us and how we treat ourselves. Our first and most important relationship we have in our lives is the one we have with ourselves that we have for our whole life. And when we want to get ourselves to do something, Again, we can have this principle that I was talking about in the last segment that we use with employees, that you have to make them afraid, you have to make them afraid to make mistakes, make them feel bad for making mistakes, and we think that's the way to get the best out of them. If I want my employees to work hard, they better be so scared to make a mistake that they don't do anything wrong. But we know that fear, although it can seem like a good motivator short-term, it doesn't create good long-term results, and it doesn't create good relationships between the people who are using it. When you use fear as your way of getting essentially obedience, you're not going to have a good relationship with that person. They're going to fear you. They're scared of you. So if that's your kids, if you think I have to make them afraid of me to make them act the way I want them to act, first of all, you're not supposed to have that happen anyway. But if you want that to be what you do, they're not going to feel a lot of love from you at the same time. So now when it comes to us, How am I going to treat myself in order to get the best out of myself? If I want to make myself the best person I can be, what should I do? And many people bring this principle to themselves. I have to be hard on myself. I have to make sure I do it right every time. If I don't do it right, I'm going to be mean to myself. I'm going to put myself down to let myself know that's not happening with me or also Because I have such a high standard for myself, I can't accept making a mistake. So I'm not going to accept making mistakes. And that's the best way to do it. And this is exactly the argument I hear from lots of people when I bring up the topic of self-compassion, being kinder towards yourself, which itself is a topic that's hard for people to talk about. Even in therapy, sometimes we try to explore someone's relationship with themselves and they're like, "I I don't even know how to answer that. What does that mean? How do I treat myself? How do I interact with myself? But although we might not be aware with it, we're constantly having a relationship with ourselves that we express through what we do, how we take care of ourselves, how we treat ourselves through those actions, but also very importantly, what we say to ourselves. We have a almost constant internal monologue that's going on that talks to ourselves saying, Sometimes it's very negative. Why did you do that? I can't believe you're doing this. You're a loser. You're this, you're that. Or it can be more loving. Oh, that was good. Way to go. Or ah, it's been a rough day, you know, but you got through it. That's okay. Let's, Let's see what we can do now to feel a little bit better. What should we do to feel better now? So we have this constantly going on. And what we do in these interactions, in these moments with ourselves is very important in how we're going to act. So going back to this idea of being hard on ourselves, and I think many people say this with pride. We know that it's almost a good thing to say I'm my biggest critic. People always say that. Or I'm so hard on myself. Oh, I'm, I'm so hard on myself. If I make a mistake, believe me, I don't accept that at all. And we think that shows, again, my standards. I'm such a good person. I'm so smart. I'm so capable. I expect so much out of myself because I'm that good. So it's kind of a way of showing off. You know, we wouldn't feel that someone says, oh, I'm so nice to myself. I really try to be kind to myself. People say, oh, that's weakness. But when we look at research on willpower and on people achieving their goals, and in the book, The Willpower Instinct, I talked about that. And she mentioned that the research shows very clearly That when people are hard on themselves for things that involve willpower, when they're trying to, for example, let's say quit smoking or go on a diet or let's say study a few hours every day, whatever their goal might be, the research shows that actually when you're harder on yourself, you're more likely to slip back into the bad behaviors again. It does many things. One is it creates a cycle. So let's say someone doesn't want to drink and... Then last night they drink and they wake up the next day. The person who's loving with themselves might say something like, ah, oh, you know, you you slipped up again, you relapsed. This isn't good. I don't want to do that. But relapses happen and it's, you know, okay. I don't want to do it again, but it's okay. And I want to do better today. Now, what can I do to do better? And they can be compassionate. Again, when we say compassionate, we're not saying be um, I per, Permissive, or in a way that's, oh, you did a great job. You deserve to drink. Who cares? It doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about. Because that's not being loving toward yourself. Because you did something that was harmful to you. So the loving person recognizes how it it recognizes how it could have been hurtful, but doesn't beat themselves up over it. The other person tells himself, I can't believe it. You're an idiot. You have no willpower. You're weak. You're the scum. You're this. You're never going to make it. No one's going to love you. Whatever else they might say in all those negative ways and think that, oh, good, look how hard I'm being on myself because I'm so, uh, you know, I have such a high standard for myself. The research shows that that person is more likely to drink that next night. Why? Because now they've created this feeling of shame, these negative emotions. And what's the easiest way for them to deal with those emotions? Unfortunately, drinking again. And they find themselves stuck in that cycle. So when we actually beat ourselves up too much, rather than encouraging us to do better, it actually pushes us down and makes it more likely we do something bad. And that's actually something to keep in mind with people around you as well. You know, sometimes we hear about tough love and there can be moments when that can be helpful. But overall, if someone is going through a hard time, they're trying to, for example, recover from something, do an exercise program, quit smoking, whatever it is, if we think that if we see them slip, if we try to be harder on them, that doesn't help them. Again, ignoring doesn't help either, but to be hard on them is not going to be what they need. To tell them, you're so bad. I can't believe you did it. You're being weak. You need to get out of that. What you're doing, you're going to, no one's going to want to do this. No one's going to love you. I'm going to leave you. That's not going to help them. The loving thing is to help them. Okay, I know you slipped. You're not feeling good about it. How can I help you to do better? People slip on their goals. No one just achieves progress linearly. You go up and down. So it's okay. But coming back to ourselves, what also happens when you are so hard on yourself is that if you know that each time you make a mistake, you're going to punish yourself very severely. Well, you're actually going to, in times, ignore your own mistakes. So if I know, for example, if we use this with a parent, if a child knows that their mom is very, uh, punitive and will abuse them if they make a mistake and they one day break a vase, well, that child is going to do everything they can to hide that. They will try to put it back together. They might literally sweep it under the rug so the mom can't see it, but they'll find some way to avoid facing that mistake because they don't want to face the punishment. The punishment is too severe. Now, on the other hand, you have a mother that might get upset, but the child feels like my mom loves me. I feel safe with her. I feel comfortable with her. So even though I broke the vase, I don't think she'll be happy, but I'm not afraid for my safety, afraid for my life, afraid for my relationship with her. I can let her know. So he might tell her, Mom, I'm sorry, but I, I was playing and I broke the vase. And she might get a little upset, but he knows it's not the end of the world. The other kid is going to be too scared to let that mom know. Now, if we take this into our own lives... Many people who are too hard on themselves, and the research shows this also, they ignore negative things that are going on in their life. They know they have to go see their accountant because something's not okay with the finances or the way they handled some paperwork, but because they don't want to face a mistake, because a mistake is intolerable to them, because they know if they see that mistake, they're going to have to beat themselves up, put themselves down and feel so bad about it, they'll ignore it and they'll keep putting it off sweeping it under the rug, pushing it back, pushing it away. And of course, the problem doesn't go away. It only grows and becomes worse and the consequences can become worse. And then they face something worse later on. But the person who's loving and compassionate towards themselves, they say, oh, I think I made a mistake there, but that's okay. I don't have to beat myself up, but let me out of love towards myself deal with this issue because I don't want it to hurt me later on. Just like a tooth pain. Someone who wants to avoid the pain isn't doing it out of love for themselves. They're they're afraid to face what's going on and it becomes a bigger issue. Someone who says, oh, you know what? It's hurting. I don't know if it's something serious or not, but why not get it checked out? That person faces it and sees what's going on. So being hard on yourself, as much as you might think, it makes you stronger. It makes you a better person. It brings out the best in you. And it doesn't just, it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. It's not going to bring out the best in you. If anything, it's going to make you afraid to make mistakes. You're going to avoid your own mistakes. And related to what I was saying before, not only will it make you afraid to make mistakes, it'll make you afraid to take risks, afraid to take a leap. If you know that if you fail, and fail, of course, is a subjective term, but if you try something and it doesn't work, that you're going to be hard on yourself. And this goes back to the idea of perfectionism. Well, then you're afraid to take a risk. I shouldn't really try that new thing I was thinking about because what if it doesn't work? Oh, yeah, that would be so stupid. And you'll convince yourself not even to give it a try because you know that if you do fail, the way you're going to have to talk to yourself, the way you're going to feel is not going to be very good, so you don't take that chance. But the person who has that self-compassion says, you know what, I want to try that idea I was thinking, and if it doesn't work, well, it doesn't work. At least I can grow from it and learn from it, and if it doesn't work, I'm not going to be hard on myself. I actually might even be proud of myself for taking that chance, for taking that risk, which I think is something very valuable and something that we want to encourage both in other people, but of course in ourselves as well. When I was talking about my father's birthday last week, um, I talked about how proud I was of him when he started this radio station. And I still can remember the launch party we had for the radio station i remember looking at him and seeing him and i think i definitely felt some anxiety about starting the new radio station but just looking at him and i remember i thought even if it doesn't work which i'm very happy that it has worked and it's been great for several years now but i didn't know what was going to happen and i remember thinking i'm so proud of him for taking this risk for doing this one because it was something that he believed in he really thought he could make a positive impact or more of a positive impact than he was already making by having this radio station that would have programming that would contribute to people's lives in a positive way, but also that he wanted to do this his way and do it the right way and that he was willing to take that chance. And I was so proud of him for taking that risk. And we want to be that way with ourselves too, not make ourselves feel bad if we fail, but reward ourselves or be proud of ourselves for taking the step To begin with, we don't know how far we can go until we fail, until you fall. You can't, you don't know how far you can jump until you try to jump as far as you can and see. oh, I couldn't make it all that way, but I can go this far. If we're afraid to spread our wings to fly, we won't go anywhere. So we want to be more compassionate with ourselves. And I hope in some ways, what I just shared will allow people that think that being hard on themselves is what pushes them to see that it actually doesn't really help. It doesn't work. When we're really hard on ourselves and put ourselves down, it doesn't encourage us to become better, it makes us afraid to fail or to make mistakes or to even face those mistakes that we are being. And to be compassionate and loving on ourselves towards ourselves doesn't mean we take it easy on ourselves. You still push yourself actually very hard, but not because you're afraid to fail or afraid to be bad, but because you love yourself, you want what's best for yourself, and you know that you have even more potential that you can express. So it's not out of fear. It's actually out of love. I want to be the best that I can be because I deserve it. Not I need to become the best or else I'm a loser. I'm unlovable. I'm no good. I know that I can be good. So I'm going to push myself because I care and love for myself. As I like to say, you don't want to run away from a nightmare. You want to chase a dream. And for many of us, when we have this feeling that I have to be good, In order to be something, I have to be good or I'm nothing. We're running away from a nightmare, which means that even when we have success, we don't feel very good because we're so afraid to lose it. Because if I ever lose it, that means I'm nothing. Or even deep down, I still feel like I'm nothing. But if I love myself and feel good about who I am, well, then I want to chase my dreams because I feel like I deserve it and I feel I can do more and I want these good things and I want to do good things. But if I don't make it there, I'm not nothing, but I'll continue striving to be better and be the best that I can. And I can live with that peace of mind that I'm good no matter what. So we want to chase our dreams, not run away from our nightmares. All right, next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. We'll be right back. back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. You know, in an earlier segment, I talked about how I threw out my back. I don't even know what that actually means, if that's what I did. I remember hearing people say that. I never wondered or never knew exactly what that was, and I'm not sure if that's what I did, but I was exercising and felt this really bad pain in my lower back, and then I couldn't even stand up straight and was on, in a lot of pain, and I still am in pain, Raman sees me in between the segments, um, trying to stretch and do different things looking quite strange, I'm sure, but it is hopefully helping a little bit. But I am in a little bit of pain. And it made me think about, uh, and I've thought about it in these past days about pain and also our health and things related to gratefulness that I, I did want to talk about. So to begin with, even when I was in pain, I did focus on it was I'm trying to make myself feel better, but I did also recognize that I am very lucky for two things. One is that I haven't had to have a lot of physical pain in my life. Um, And this was something I was facing, but I haven't had to face too much in that way, which I'm very lucky and grateful for. Not everyone is that lucky. So even in that pain, I could find some gratefulness, things to be grateful for, you know, um, although my back is hurting, other parts of my body are not hurting. And this is something that likely the pain is temporary and will get better. And I'm very lucky for that. So even in the pain, I could find um, the gratefulness. And that's something that, and that at the same time doesn't mean we ignore the pain. So some things I see, sometimes I see this in therapy a lot. People come in and they say, You know, they start getting into things. They say, oh, my mom did this. And then they stop themselves and they say, but she did so much for me. How can I not be grateful for that? How can I be mad at her? Or they're crying about their life. And, you know, I'm so sad these days. I've been crying all the time. I feel upset about this. And they say, it's how could I be so sad? I should be so grateful. I have this and this and other people are suffering so much more than me. How can I be sad? So to begin with, the experience of pain and the experience of gratefulness are not mutually exclusive. For example, in my situation, I can think about myself right now and I'm like, oh, my back does hurt. It doesn't feel good. But I'm also grateful for so many things in my life. And in saying my back hurts, it doesn't mean I'm not saying I'm grateful for those things and I, or that I can't be. Now, if I said my life is the worst thing in the world because of my back, then yeah, I'm throwing everything else out. But doesn't mean that because I'm saying my back hurts, I'm not recognizing the other good things that I have. So you can say, I'm grateful for my family, for this and that, but right now I'm very sad about this, or I'm not even sure why I'm sad. And depression we know doesn't always have a cause in that, okay, something had to have happened to you that you feel depressed, and we have to be able to put a finger on it, and we might not know. And if you're feeling sad, you're feeling sad. That's just what's going on. But to feel that you are somehow guilty or you should feel blaming yourself in some way because you're upset or sad is not going to help you related to what I was talking about in the last segment. And it's perfectly natural. And it doesn't mean you can't still be grateful for your life. You can be very grateful to your mom for all the things they she did for you, but then also she really hurt you in these few ways. Things aren't black and white. But especially when it comes to our parents, we do try to hold on to that idealization that we have as a child, that my parents were good, they didn't make mistakes, they were omnipotent and powerful and strong, and they did nothing wrong. And sometimes we make it black or white. We do what we call splitting. They either have to be all good or all bad. When that's not true of anyone, your parents were likely good people that tried their best, but they still hurt you in some ways and in acknowledging that pain, it doesn't mean you're saying they were bad parents, you're being ungrateful, you're blaming them or putting them down, you're just acknowledging pain where the pain is and nothing is bad about that or wrong about that. Your parents were not perfect and they were not supposed to be perfect as none of us are. So to say you have issues with someone or some relationship doesn't mean you're completely throwing that relationship all out as bad. Now, related to that, to that, another thing people do in therapy is they'll talk about their problems, you know, they'll be talking. Oh, I'm really upset about this, or this is bothering me. And then they're crying. And as a defense to get away from their sadness, they'll say something along the lines of, but why can't, why am I sad? There's people who are suffering so much more than me, people who have real problems or people who have bigger problems. How can I be sad? And the example I use is if imagining if you went to the doctor's office because you broke your leg in a car accident and then the doctor looks at you and she says, oh, you just have one broken leg? I saw someone yesterday with two broken legs. Get out of my office. that That's not what happens. Whatever pain you have, that's your pain and it's worth attending to. It's not the suffering Olympics where we find out who has suffered the most and we only help that one person. And then after that person's helped, we go to the next person in most pain no everyone who's going through pain their pain deserves being attended to cared for treated and made better and i hear this a lot in my office people say oh you probably think i'm so stupid to care about these problems or that these things get me down you hear so much worse stuff and really that never crosses my mind when i'm working with someone and when i'm with someone in the room or if it's in my life when you're talking to them their pain is the one you're dealing with or they're the person you're talking to. You don't think about someone else who's hurting more. So let me think about them. Just like if your kid came to you crying, you don't think, oh, there's another kid who's going through worse. So I'm not going to hug my own child right now and love them. Oh, but your kid's crying and they're in pain. You're going to do what you can to make them feel better because that pain is real and right in front of you. So going back to what I was saying in the previous segment, we could have that same compassion for ourselves. Oh, I'm hurting right now my role is to help myself if someone in some other country is hurting more than me i can't really do anything for them now anyway my responsibility is to take care of myself and make sure i'm okay so this hurt me let me deal with it so it's a way that we try to avoid our own pain because it's hard for us to face it but it also undermines and invalidates what we're going through something that people have often done to us too so it's not just that we came up with this on our own but very often people have made us feel that way, that your pain isn't that important, that your pain isn't that bad, that your pain is not worth crying for. Now, I'm not here to tell you that your pain necessarily is worth crying for. I don't know what you're going through, but I'm telling you that if you're going through something, you do deserve to deal with that. You do deserve to deal with that pain. You need to see a doctor, go see a doctor. You don't have to wait till the pain is so bad to see a doctor. And unfortunately, that's what it makes people do. When we have this mindset that, well, if you're hurting a little bit, you don't shouldn't make it a big deal or you shouldn't say anything about it. People wait till the pain becomes more, becomes worse. The problem becomes a bigger issue and then they try to deal with it where it's harder to deal with or maybe you can't even deal with it at this point. Or we might exaggerate our pain because we feel like people won't hear us unless our pain is really strong. And this is something we can see in the dynamics of lots of relationships, whether it's parents and kids, or husbands and wives, or whoever it might be, very often we feel like because my pain won't matter unless it's something extreme, I have to exaggerate it. So sometimes I work with families and they say, gosh, my kid or my husband or my wife exaggerates how they feel. Well, first of all, I can't say they necessarily are doing that, but even if they are, that might actually be because if they just tell you how they feel, it won't be enough for them or for you. If they don't tell you they're really suffering, you won't care enough to do something about it or take it seriously. So you have to ask yourself, if someone is really strongly telling you something, if someone is yelling to get their point across, sometimes it's because if they told it to you in a calm way, you wouldn't care or you wouldn't respond. And this is what leads to people escalating. So if I come up to you and I say, you know what you did to me, it hurt my feelings. And you're like, oh, shut up. What are you talking about? Like, I didn't say anything. You're just, you're not that hurt well, my next step is either to make you feel that my pain is even worse if I really want to get my point across. So maybe I'll start crying or uh, exaggerating what I'm feeling or showing some histrionics, or I might get really mad to make sure you know what you did really hurt me. So I'm going to have to exaggerate it. And that's what happens next. Then I start saying it louder or I become more extreme and you still might not hear me. Then I become more extreme to make sure you finally hear me. And they say, oh my gosh, all it was was something small. And maybe it was something small, but when it was something I felt, it wasn't enough for you. Now, on the other hand, if I came to you, I said, well, you know, what you did yesterday bothered me. say, oh, really? Let's talk about it. Now I don't have to go to those extreme measures to show you that I was so hurt in order to get you to listen. So if you're dealing with someone, in effect, they're telling you things extreme in extreme ways. They're reacting too much. It could be about them, but also could be about you not hearing them when they're saying it in more subtle ways, in more calm ways, or you let them know they can't tell you something unless it's an emergency. And because of that, they hold things in until it becomes an emergency or anything they tell you, they express it to you in this extreme way. They have to say it's something bad, but coming back to ourselves and dealing with our pain, I hope that you recognize that your pain is important, that what you're going through matters that what you're experiencing deserves your care and potentially the care of others who can help you in that process. You don't need to put your pain away, minimize your pain or invalidate your pain, telling yourself the stories of, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Other people have it harder than me. Um, I don't need to do anything about this. It'll go away on its own. And the various things we tell ourselves to either pretend like our pain is not there or because we don't value ourselves enough and think our pain doesn't matter. Everyone's pain matters, not just those who are suffering the most. And I'm sure no matter what you're going through, if you want, you can try to find someone who's going through worse. So that's never going to be the way to recognize you need help, that you can't find anyone going through worse. If, if you need to think about it, imagine a child in pain. If a child falls and hits the ground and you're there to pick them up, you're not going to think other kids have fallen harder, other kids are going through more, you're going to pick that kid up. Remember that you're that kid too. When you're going through something, you deserve that pain. And then the other side of remembering that even when we're going through pain, we can still be grateful for life too, that they're not incompatible. That's been something that I've really been feeling closely as I've been going through these past couple of days with this back pain that I've been dealing with, that everything has become a little bit harder Getting in and out of the car is a process, um, doing things that I thought would not be difficult or difficult. You don't realize how much you're using certain muscles to do certain things, but I've been getting through it and going through it and I've been uh, going through that pain, but at the same time, been grateful for my life and the things I do have. Again, uh, we can focus on the parts of our body that are working okay too. Yes, my back hurts, but I'm grateful that I don't have pains in other parts of my body and thank God. All organs are working good enough to keep me alive. And that's something that I'm grateful for that I do have my health. And another thing that comes up when we experience something like this is recognizing what we take for granted, another aspect of gratefulness. Sometimes we don't realize to even be grateful for something till we lose it or we hear of someone else losing it. You hear someone lost a loved one, and you go, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky my mom or my dad is here, my husband or wife hasn't died. I realize I can lose that. Or, Um, you know, people who have gone through all these devastating hurricanes, you think, gosh, I didn't even think that having my home be where it is is something that I should be grateful for, because I just always assumed that was a given, but clearly it's not. We live in a world where, of course, things can happen. There are natural disasters. I'm seeing all these articles now about earthquakes in LA. I think everyone is just... Natural disaster happy and thinking about what can happen, but things can happen and you don't realize what you can have till you lose it. And part of being grateful is turning our attention towards recognizing what we do have. And gratefulness, I know it sounds like this cheesy thing and this kumbaya hippie type of a thing that people who just think a certain way might do, but it doesn't have any benefit. But the research shows us that it could be beneficial for depression and for overall mental health. To focus on gratitude and gratefulness, to do something like a gratitude journal where you write down every day things that you are grateful for and actually to do it with the most benefit, you want to come up with new things each day. So if each day you wake up, you say, I'm grateful for my mom, I'm grateful for my dad, I'm grateful for my health, I'm grateful for whatever, safety, and then that's it. Yeah, that might be good, but it's not as good as really looking at your life each day and recognizing What are the things that I'm grateful for today that I didn't mention yesterday? And each day come up with new things and the gratitude muscle in our brain, not an actual muscle, but uh, if we think of it that way, just becoming grateful, becomes stronger. And we focus on more and see more positive things in our life. And that's why it actually can be a helpful part of treatment for depression, because when we're depressed, the mind unfortunately has this lens of seeing everything in a negative way about the past, the present, the future, about ourselves. We don't have hope. We don't see anything good in the world or in ourselves, but just forcing ourselves to try to focus on the positive, our mind becomes more aware of the good that we still have and that surrounds us. And we actually can start to feel better. So we can be in pain and be grateful. Or really, if we think about it, we're always having both. There's always some things that we have that are hurting us in our lives or we don't feel very good about. It might not always be as clear as my back pain, which I can really localize and make a specific thing, but there's some things we're not very happy about or we wish could be better, but we also can be very grateful for what we have in our lives too. They're not incompatible. It doesn't make you ungrateful to complain or to feel pain and to talk about it or deal with it, but we have to recognize that we can have both and we want to focus on both and see them both in ourselves and not judge ourselves for either feeling all right going into our last commercial break studio number 310-441-0555 you're listening to in session with dr fatty delacui we'll be right back welcome back in the last segment i was talking about how we can feel grateful and feel pain at the same time, where we can feel grateful about things in our life and also be upset and hurt about things in our life. Now, in this last segment, I wanted to talk about how we can be grateful for our pain. I don't mean this in some kind of masochistic way that we enjoy pain or that we inflict pain on ourselves or want to feel bad. No, um, but we recognize that life is difficult, life is challenging, and life does have pains in it, and we can actually be grateful for the pain in that in our pain, very often there can be a lot of meaning and things that we get from it. So again, it's not a good thing to have pain. I'm not saying we want to feel in pain or give someone pain to say, oh, they're going to be grateful for this later. No, that doesn't work. But that in our experience of life, we will have painful experiences and we can recognize that we can be grateful for those As well in Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about how there can be meaning in suffering, that actually that what he saw was that people who were in the concentration camps, who had some kind of meaning for their suffering, they were able to get through it much more easily than those who did not have such a meaning. So there can be meaning in our pain and we can even be grateful for that pain if I look at my own life, I can see these experiences. For example, when I think about being a student at UCLA and studying all night to take tests, when I look back on that pain of being up all night, being tired, uh, being anxious about the tests, I actually see that I'm very grateful for going through that experience that was, I don't, painful might sound like a strong word, but it was difficult and challenging, something I was choosing to do, and that's where the meaning comes in. I One, I was choosing to do it, so I wasn't forced to be studying in that way. And two, uh, it had meaning for me to get my education and to learn the things that I was learning. So I had a lot that I was growing from that and I was uh, enjoying about it. But also if I think of more painful experiences like breakups or um, seeing loved ones going through something. For example, a breakup can be a very painful thing, and that's something I mentioned to start the show, about how to be there for someone who's going through a breakup. And when you're feeling that pain of a breakup, it feels like death sometimes. It's very hurtful, it doesn't feel good, you're crying, and it feels like this bottomless pit of tears and emptiness and loneliness that might not ever go away, or you wonder if you're ever going to stop crying. That's how it could very often feel. This is actually one of the reasons why people avoid crying in the first place or avoid their sadness. Sometimes they wonder, will it ever end? If I open up that box, will I ever be able to close it? Will I ever stop crying? Because that's how it can feel. But if I think about the pain I've gone through in ending a relationship, although the pain was very strong, very significant. It hurt a lot. I'm grateful for that pain at the same time because I'm grateful that it showed, A, I went through something so meaningful that when it ended it was hurtful, but also I recognize that in that pain um, there was growth. actually remember the first breakup that I ever went through and I was crying a lot, and I was very sad, and I was talking to my dad about it. And I'll never forget it. We were on a train going from, I believe it was New York to Washington, D.C., or Washington, D.C. to New York, one or the other, because it was for my brother's law school graduation, I believe. Nonetheless, we were on that train, and I was crying, and I was sad, and I remember he was very sweet and kind and loving towards me and about what I was going through. But I remember him saying something along the lines of, you know, that this is difficult, but this is what's going to help make you a man. And even in that moment, although it was hard for me to fully grasp it, I remember being in a lot of pain, it still did mean something to me then. And it meant more to me as I reflected on it, that he wasn't saying, I want you to go through pain. I can tell he was heartbroken to see me crying and to see me so sad and to see that I was not happy. And that really he couldn't do anything about it. And he didn't, I didn't feel like he was trying to cheer me up or take away my pain. He was really just being there with me, talking to me, giving me his comfort, giving me his words of wisdom and in a caring, loving way. Uh, But still, I did realize the value in what he said, that in that pain, I was growing. Those were growing pains. And I've talked before about how we have to differentiate both in our physical body, but in our emotions as well if the pain we're going through is the pain of growth or the pain of damage. And it's sometimes hard to tell. So right now, looking at my body, I was exercising and there was ways that I was going through pains of growth, that there was tiny tears in my muscles that were then going to repair themselves and become stronger. But of course, whatever I did to my back, that was a pain of damage at that point, and that was not good. It was not help, healthy or helpful for me in growing my, and becoming stronger. So there's different types of pain. Emotionally, the same thing can happen. And the reason why I want to make that distinction is because sometimes someone could say, okay, well, that means if this relationship is painful, it's good for me. Well, no, not necessarily. If someone is abusing you, putting you down, disrespecting you in the relationship and making you not feel very good... That pain is damage. That pain is not growth and we don't want to actually continue that. Just like I could not continue using my back muscle when it became damaged in this way or whatever I did to damage it. Same thing in that relationship. It's not helping you. So just because you're feeling pain, I don't want us to go to that other extreme and think that anything painful is good. No, there's some pain that is damaging, that is hurtful, that will continue to hurt us and won't make us stronger. Actually, it makes us weaker. But then there's some pain that leads to growth. So going back to what I was experiencing, as sad as I was, as heartbroken as I was hearing my father say that did give my suffering some meaning. And as I grew older, I recognized the wisdom in what he had said that going through that pain, although again, he wouldn't prescribe it for anyone or he wouldn't force someone to feel it was something that was helping me grow and has helped me continue to grow to recognize that relationships can end. There is pain in them. It doesn't feel good when they end, but sometimes if they need to end, they should end. And we can't avoid that pain in order to stay in something because we're afraid to face that pain or afraid to make the other person face that pain either. So sometimes we have to make the right decision, even if it's the hardest decision or the harder decision and recognize that pain is not a reason to not make a decision when it's the pain for growth and pain for the right reason. So I learned that lesson too, but I also learned that although there's pain in a relationship ending, it doesn't mean that relationships themselves are not worth having. To love means to risk. You have to open yourself up to someone. You have to allow yourself to connect with someone. You get close to someone, create emotions and feelings within yourself and with that person, create a connection, memories, um, not just memories, longings for the future, dreams of the future together that you're going to have in the life you might make together and all those wonderful things that come about when you have a relationship, all with the knowledge that you can't guarantee it's going to last, that you will have it forever, that it will always be there you open yourself up, you're vulnerable with someone, you share with them of your innermost self without the guarantee, because there is one, that it can last forever. And that's painful. And that's why love is always a risk. It involves some risk to go ahead and do that. But thankfully, although it has that risk, most of us choose to try again, to keep going. And without that guarantee, uh, encourage ourselves to go back out there and try to make it happen because we feel it's worth it so in going through that pain what i also learned in the whole process of it and especially coming out of it was that as painful as it was the pain did gradually become less and go away i did become more okay so i also learned that pain was not forever that the pain of this relationship ending was not going to last the rest of my life was not going to take something away from me forever, but actually could allow me to grow. And all, not only that I could already had grown through the relationship and I could take that into my next relationship, which actually made me stronger as well. So I learned what he said was right, that the pain of the breakup, as difficult as it was, was helping me grow into a man to grow stronger and our pains when they're in the right way, actually do allow for us to grow and we can be grateful for that pain too. I don't mean this to say that when you're hurting, you should tell yourself it feels good or that it doesn't hurt. That's not what I'm saying, because sometimes we might go to that other extreme that because oh, pain feels good. I'm going through this breakup or I'm going through this hard time. It doesn't hurt me at all. It feels good. And that's not a genuine expression of what we're going through, but rather trying to avoid our pain to not face it. But we can face our pain head on and recognize that the only way out is through. The only way to get through this experience, to come out on the other side, is to face the pain, but that we can still be grateful to have these experiences even that allow for us to be in pain. So for the relationships I've been in, I'm very grateful to them that the pain I have was as a result of how good it felt to be with that person, about the connection that I had with them, um, the beautiful moments and memories and all of those good things, so that reminds me that i'm actually lucky to feel the pain that i would be feeling i'm lucky to have that pain because that means that i went through something so beautiful that when i lost it it was hurtful it was painful just like if you lose a loved one in your life of course you're going to miss them when they die so it's not saying don't miss them because you should be grateful but there is a recognition that as painful as it is One of the reasons why it's so painful is because you loved them so much. They meant so much to you. The relationship you had was so beautiful with them that losing that is painful. It wouldn't be painful if you didn't care about them, if you didn't have a good relationship with them, if they didn't matter to you. So your tears, your pain, your sadness is an indication that you had something valuable in your life. You had something meaningful, that that person was special to you. That person is special. Losing them hurts because you cared about them and you still want them in your life. So the pain is still going to be there. We don't need to erase it and tell ourselves, well, they're in a better place. So I'm selfish if I'm sad. Well, you can call it selfish if you want. I don't think of it that way, but you're sad because you miss them. Nothing wrong with that. Again, that shows you how much you cared about them and value them. We can't deny that pain. But at the same time, we can recognize, gosh, I'm so lucky to have had someone in my life that it does hurt to lose them whether that's in a relationship, whether that's to death, whatever, wherever the cause of the loss might be, that feeling that having something that was worth, that was painful to lose is actually something that we can be grateful for. So we can be grateful for that reason and also that our pain can allow us to grow and we can grow through that pain if it's for the right reasons and if we try to learn the lessons from it. I think I learned the lesson from my back pain, to be very careful when I'm planking that I don't move my body too much because that's what happened when I was trying to look at the TV while I was planking and it didn't quite work out. So hopefully I've learned that lesson and I'll do more things to strengthen my lower back. wanted to end it on that lighter note, but pain is not always a bad thing. We can be grateful for our pain and we can be grateful and in pain at the same time. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. I wanted to make another announcement about the book of the week because I really hope people read this one. Um, It's a shorter one. It's just about 150 pages, if that makes it easier for people to think they can get through it by Monday, but it's by Tanahasi Coates, and it's Between the World and Me. Um, On the cover of the book, I'm looking at it right now from Toni Morrison. It says, this is required reading, but I think it's a very good book to read to understand um, what the experience of many people is in this country at this time, something that we can't really ever understand what someone else is going through, but this book does paint a nice picture. Uh, it's a letter from him to his adolescent son, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. So I hope you'll join me in reading this book, and I'll discuss it on Monday night's show. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. Thank you to Raman here in the studio and everyone that's sitting out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Alokwi. Hope you have a wonderful day.